Hard Feelings by Mark Coggins is a bang bang thrill ride, says best-selling author Seth Harwood, who adds that the lead character of Winnie is a female Jack Reacher. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 32 Winnie Winnie parked the SUV on a spur of the dirt road behind Marionette Vineyards. The dashboard clock read 2.20 a.m. when she got out to walk the remaining half-mile or so to the back door of the wine caves. She was late, at least according to Ray's master plan. Shadows from the transmission towers lining the road fell across her like jail bars as she walked. The aroma of sickly sweet wildflowers mingling with the acrid tang of dust filled the night. She thought about Reardon, and then she tried not to think about him. Winnie knew she treated him badly. She might have at least said goodbye. She followed a tight curve around a granite outcropping and came abruptly to the road's end. There, at the far side of a turnaround, was the hill with the winemaker's cave. Set into the hillside, sheathed in concrete, but lacking markings or any other sort of adornment, was a single steel door. It gleamed dully in the moonlight, almost tauntingly, it seemed to Winnie. She wondered if the pipe bomb Ray had made for her would even dent it. She crouched in the shadow of the outcropping and removed her backpack. She had to assume there was a video camera monitoring the door so she wanted to be ready with a bomb and the detonator before she approached it. But before she even unzipped the pack, the sound of wheels moving quickly over gravel boiled up behind her. Headlights stabbed past the corner, pivoted, and shone on the door. A white van, just like all the other winemakers' white vans, skidded to a stop less than ten feet away. She dropped to her haunches and brought up her sawed-off. One man tumbled out from the passenger side, and another from the rear. The man on the far side hurried to the wine cave and waved at an unseen camera or window. The door swung open and he went inside. The guy at the back of the van wrestled a ramp of some sort from the interior. He was brawny and stupid-looking, more pecks than brains, but when he happened to glance up and see Winnie squatting by the outcropping, She knew there was no way to avoid bringing the fight to them now, however much she would have preferred to wait. The boom of the shotgun startled her, even though she had caused it. The spread caught the beefy guy square in the chest, and he dropped to the ramp, slumping and twisting to the ground as Winnie turned her attention to the driver. She pumped the shotgun slide with one hand while she reached for the side door with the other. She yanked the door open and shoved the muzzle in the gap between the headrest and the seat. The driver was pinned, the seatbelt tensioner locked by his urgent attempt to face her. He was fumbling for a gun in a shoulder holster when she pulled the trigger. The front windshield fractured like a mosaic. A viscous coating of blood and flesh stained the center in a bullseye pattern. The seatbelt unspooled slowly. 
lowering the driver's ruined head to the steering wheel. Winnie shoved him aside to yank the keys from the ignition and sent them hurtling into the night. She ran in a low crouch towards the wine caves. She laminated herself along the door jamb and poked the barrel of a shotgun through the opening, doing the same with her head for a two-second peep. Winnie saw a long corridor, narrow and sloping downward, lit by banks of fluorescent lights. A sliding steel door stood open on the left near where the slope flattened out. She couldn't see inside. There was no one visible in the corridor, no one running to investigate the gunshots. Winnie dodged across the threshold, sprinting at full speed. Five steps into the corridor, she heard a tremendous boom, and the lights overhead flickered out. She smiled and then felt herself tear up. The crazy bastard had done it, with a pressure cooker, no less. She prayed that meant he was still alive. A yellow emergency light came on above the sliding door, just in time for her to see the last guy from the van cross the threshold. He skidded to a stop with a terrified look on his face, and she pulled the trigger. His head jerked back. He tottered for a moment and then went down in a heap. Winnie hurried past his sprawl body to crouch along the wall on the far side of the door. A long minute went by, and then another. She peered anxiously behind her, worried that someone would sneak up from further down the tunnel. She seemed to have lost her momentum, hesitating for the first time in a long time. Winnie had caught a brief glimpse of the space beyond the door, and it looked to be a lab or physical therapy room. It, too, was lit by emergency lighting, and she'd noticed parallel bars of the sort used to do ambulation and gait training. She hadn't seen anyone else in the room, but multiple hallways fed into it. It seemed obvious that the men in the van had come to pick up someone, someone who needed a wheelchair, if the ramp in the back meant anything. It could only be the winemaker bolting for safety. This was the chance she'd been waiting for. She knew she should charge into the lab to find him, but she didn't. A second explosion interrupted her ruminations. It was smaller, and it seemed to come from further down the cave, Reardon blowing the front door. It dawned on her why she was waiting, what she hadn't been able to admit to herself. She was worried about Reardon, and she realized that she wanted his help after all. Winnie was waiting for him. Others were not. As she watched, the body of the dead guy jerked, and he gave a galvanic heave forward. Someone was trying to throw him out of the doorway. It was now or never. In another moment, they would close the door, and she would lose the opportunity. Winnie dove to a spot near the body, twisting to the right to bring her gun to bear on whomever was thrusting the corpse out of the way. It was a mistake. The two giants she had faced at the gym and the PG&E truck were waiting for her with shotguns of their own. As she brought her sawed-off up to fire, the quicker of the two, the one Reardon had beamed on the head, took a galumping step onto the barrel of her gun. Her shot scorched the floor. Stray pellets might have nicked the other foot of the giant, but it didn't matter. He was like her. He felt no pain. She released the gun and tried to roll away. It was no good. The giant was slow, 
but he didn't waste time reaching for her. He simply fell on top of her, gripping her around the ribs so tightly that she had trouble breathing. He tottered to his feet, hoisting her up like some kind of wildlife trophy. She beat on his legs with her hands and kicked back with her feet. He didn't feel any of her blows below the waist, and she couldn't reach his head. The other giant, the one she had tangled with at the gym, came round to grin at her as she dangled upside down. He was still smiling as he clubbed her in the mouth with the butt of his shotgun. Searing white pain radiated across her jaw, and spots swam in front of her eyes. She felt herself being thrown to the floor, kicked, and then hoisted back to her feet. With her head lolling, her eyes pressed tightly in pain, and blood dripping from her mouth, she heard rubber wheels squeegeeing over the concrete. "'Close the door,' said a voice she knew and dreaded, "'and bring her over here by the light.' The door clanged closed as she was dragged across the floor like a wet mop. "'Hold her head up,' said the voice. "'Look at me, bitch.' The giant behind her clamped his hand under her bruised jaw and yanked it up. She grimaced with pain, closing her eyes even tighter. I said, look at me. More pressure was applied to her damaged jaw. She yelped and pried her eyes open. The winemaker stared at her from his perch on an elaborate electric wheelchair. What did you mention on our Skype call? He asked. Something about not winning? He worked his mouth into a fisher-like smile. That same mouth clamped into an angry line when a pounding from the other side of the sliding door intruded. Winnie thought she heard Reardon calling her name and felt a stirring of hope. The winemaker snatched it away. Ignore it, he said to the giants. No one can get through, and Donovan will deal with it shortly. We have more important things now. Seemingly on its own accord, the motor of his wheelchair kicked in and ran him to within inches of her. Nothing to say now? Winnie licked blood from her lips and swallowed, but she found no words. Did you recognize something of yourself in these two? Wh why? Winnie managed to croak. You mean why did I use the technology to help them? Yes, why? That's Sergi behind you and Anatoly over there. They are not from the same family, but they both come from a remote area in Ukraine where a certain genetic mutation is common. It's the cause of a growth disorder known as Banning-Bilheimer syndrome, BB syndrome for short. Its victims grow to unusual size and height, but lack coordination. They often suffer from partial paralysis when the bones in the spine grow faster than the spinal cord, stretching and damaging it. This was the case with Sergi and Anatoly. Lots of people would benefit. It's why Ted built our company, but that's not... Not my style? The winemaker smiled grimly. You misunderstand me. I'm happy to restore their mobility. I'm happy to restore the mobility of thousands of young men like them and any others who volunteer to build a superior army. Think of it, immensely strong troops who don't feel pain or fatigue. No force of jihadists, however fanatical, will be able to stop them. 
Winnie realized that her jaw must be broken. It was intensely painful to talk. Selfless, she muttered nonetheless. Patriotism is selfless by definition, but I'll acknowledge a personal motivation. There's no denying that you, your precious Ted, and that idiot detective put me in a position to benefit. I have the same version of the technology as Sergi and Anatoly. It's of limited use to me, directly. The muscles in my legs were damaged in prison. But I can use it to move other things. This wheelchair, for instance. And more interestingly, Sergi and Anatoly. That's my other reason for helping them. In exchange for receiving the technology, they also give up control of their bodies when I want. Instead of an old, damaged body, I now have two immensely big and powerful ones to direct. That's sick. The winemaker dismissed the comment with a head shake. But as you must have realized by now, our version of the technology is lacking in some way. We lost some small but vital piece of the puzzle when we took the designs and the software from your husband's company. I need it back, and you're going to give it to me. The winemaker kicked the footrest from the wheelchair out of the way and stood on his wobbly legs just in front of it. He nodded to Anatoly. Get a knife and cut off her clothing. She must be wearing the transceiver under the tracksuit. Don't damage it. The moment the winemaker mentioned the word knife, Winnie twisted to free herself from Sergi's grip. It was futile. He was immensely strong, and no advantage she had in agility was going to let her slip out of his iron embrace. The winemaker laughed. When I was in prison, I was brutalized and raped many times. I owe you for that. After we recover the transceiver, we're going to pull the battery from it and paralyze you. Then I will use my Ukrainian friends to repay the debt. You have been listening to No Hard Feelings, a finalist for the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Thank you.